Hello, and welcome to another episode of 13, the Colgate University podcast that asks 13 questions of Colgate community members. Now, today I have the honor of welcoming three folks to the show to talk about a topic that is very near and dear to my heart, and that is coffee. We have Professor of Geography, Peter Klepeis, co-owner of the Downtown Hamilton Coffee Roaster and Cafe, Fojo Beans, Dan Joseph, and Joining us remotely from Bogota, Colombia, via Zoom, is a professor and coffee expert from the University of the Andes, Andres Gould. Now, Professor Klepeis is a Colgate alumnus from the class of 1994, and he earned his master's and PhD uh, from Clark University. Professor Klepeis is a geographer who teaches about subjects related to the environment, sustainable development, and natural resource management. Earlier this year, in January, Professor Klepeis led a sophomore residential seminar at Colgate, uh, a 10-day trip to Columbia for his course titled, What's in Your Cup? The Geography of What We Drink. The seminar's 17 students spent the fall of 2021 semester analyzing the social and environmental implications of beverages commonly consumed in the United States, including coffee, tea, wine, bottled water, and craft beer and cider. The campus coursework was followed by the 10-day trip to Columbia in January. And that trip was co-directed by Professor Gould and Dan Joseph from Fojo Beans accompanied the group. It was an unusual opportunity for a coffee importer and a U.S. cafe owner to learn about the place where the coffee he sells originates, while also providing some unique insight into the coffee business for all of the students on the trip. So welcome, everyone, to 13. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So I want to kick off talking a little bit about the genesis of the course. And I wonder, um, Professor Klepeis, if you could just walk us through the, the concept behind it and maybe a little background, too, about what is a sophomore residential seminar. Sure. Uh, I teach uh, courses on all kinds of environmental issues, climate change, environmental hazards, um, and in all of my classes, I'm really interested in getting the students to grapple with ethical consumption. You know, where do the things they consume come from? You know, what are the social and environmental implications of them? Um, and I'm certainly also interested in often describing patterns of change, problems, and thinking about environmental policy. And sometimes those things can be a little abstract, especially for a college student. So the idea behind the course is to take something that we consume every day, in many cases, um, and have that be a, a vehicle for understanding how we are connected to people in places either far away or close by, and all of the processes that go into that consumption. So the what's in your cup idea was linked to, in part, that goal, and also the fact that I've been very lucky, either through research travel or study abroad, to learn about uh, wine uh, and rooibos tea in South Africa, to learn about tea production in Uganda. Um, I spent uh, my dissertation work in southeastern Mexico. I did study abroads in South America. So I was taking these travel experiences and remembering what I had learned about beverages, even though that's not my, my primary area of focus. And that was the idea behind the course. So it's very much um, uh, kind of a labor of love. It's getting students to, in a tangible way, connect something that they consume every day with these broader issues of ethical consumption and sustainability. 
So I did teach this course as a first-year seminar uh, as I was trying it out. And then uh, Martin Wong, um, the geologist and associate dean of the faculty who is in charge of international programs, uh, encouraged me to propose an SRS course, a sophomore residential seminar course. And as you described, the idea is to get the students to grapple with the content, the concepts, the analytical perspectives, and then go to a place where you can really learn about it firsthand. Um, so that was, that was the idea. Nice. I will do a little shameless plug for an earlier podcast episode where we had uh, Martin uh, and uh, Joanna Holvey-Bowles on, who both uh, oversee our off-campus study group. So if you want to learn more about that, go back and check it out. Um, so how did all three of you, Andres, Dan, and uh, Peter, how did you all come together to, I guess, work on this trip uh, in tandem? Okay, I'll, I'll give you a brief synopsis. Um, Pilar Mejia Barrera, who is in the Romance Languages program at Colgate, she and I went to uh, Colombia in 2018. Uh, we were thinking about student opportunities there, ways to get students to learn about the country. And we met Andres Gould, who I had not known before. And, uh, we, but we knew his reputation. And that conversation stimulated um, all kinds of additional conversations. We invited him to come to Colgate um, and give a presentation on his coffee research. Um, he is a geographer, so we have a lot to talk about. Um, and that uh, led to uh, a, a, I guess, a collaboration and uh, a commitment to doing the SRS program. Uh, in the fall, as we are planning this trip, so this has been ongoing now for quite some time, um, this past fall, as a way to get my students to help understand coffee, I um, had them go down to Fojo uh, Beans, the cafe. Uh, Dan gave a wonderful presentation to the students. Um, we had been talking about this visit uh, in, I think it was August or September, uh, prior to the students going down to, to meet with him. And Dan, sort of off the cuff, as I was explaining the trip to Columbia, said, in essence, I want to go. Um, I think my words, my exact words were, I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I thought, why didn't I think of that before? Uh, let me ask Martin and the powers that be if that can happen. And I asked Andres what he thought, and we all thought it was great. So, you know, so that's what happened. So Dan joined us. I'm going to interject. I also had to beg Pilar not to say she wanted to go. Ah. <clears throat> Pilar. She, she has, she trumps me. In this in this trip, well, it, it turns out <laughs> Pilar and her husband Antonio did join the trip in part while we were there. But yes, um, you're right. <laughs> um, so so that's how it worked. Um, we we I had met Andres in 2018. Uh, had known Dan kind of off and on, but we really didn't get a chance to to get to know each other until this trip. So it's mm. been it's been great. Two good friends now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For those who have been to Hamilton before, uh, Fojo Beans is right at the intersection, the main intersection of the village, right at the, the center of the village there. And Dan, how long has uh, Fojo been open now? The cafe has been open a little over three years. Okay, very good. And had you been to Columbia prior to this trip? I'm not actually traveled there, no. I've, I've visited every one of my coffee farms on Google Maps only. <laughs> so this was my first opportunity to see firsthand where the coffee that I bring into the United States or bring into Fojo Beans originates. So can you walk me through a little bit of the itinerary highlights, uh, things that you did while you were there with the students? Yeah, in fact, uh, Andres, this might be a, a good opportunity for you to, to join the conversation since uh, Andres was uh, 
the the main um, person uh, suggesting uh, possible visits. Um, we did work in collaboration, but Andres was the mover and the shaker on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so would you like to give a summary, Andres? Sure, I, I will. Um, well, basically, as a, as a Colombian, I also wanted students to get um, um, a more general idea about the country, get to know other places. I mean, although the main topic was coffee, uh, I wanted them to see other, other things. So um, with Peter, we, we discussed the possibility of staying in Bogota for a few days uh, to get to know the capital city and to go uh, on a hike to one of the most uh, amazing and unique ecosystems um, here in Colombia that is called the Paramo. It's a highland ecosystem um, about 9,000 feet, above 9,000 feet. That is very beautiful, like um, alpine meadows. Um, and after that, uh, originally, uh, Peter suggested that we should fly to the coffee growing area. And I was a little bit stubborn and I said, no, why don't we drive? So in that way, students can see how we change um, temperatures, vegetation as we go down the mountains and then it changes back again when we go up and we cross another mountain bridge. So we took a bus um, to um, two different cities. Uh, we, we stayed one night in a city called Onda, which is a port on the Magdalena River. So the Magdalena River became also part of, 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 of the trip. We visited the museum. Students read um, parts of um, a recent book by, a, by an anthropologist called Wade Davis called Magdalena River of Dreams, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, after that, we crossed the second um, mountain range of Colombia. Colombia has three mountain ranges. And we entered the coffee growing area. Um, uh, there we visited some coffee farms um, with the with the help and the support of, of the coffee growers association. The, the, uh, Juan Valdez himself was helping us, so <laughs> they, uh, he took us to visit visit some coffee farms. And after that, we we, we visited some. Um, um, we have a very, uh, I would say, uh, advanced coffee research center here in Colombia. And we, we had the opportunity to visit the coffee research center and learn what they have uh, done there to develop um, coffee varieties, uh, processing methods, things like that. And after that, we had a couple of more leisurely days. Uh, one of them was um, with some colleagues from a university in a, in a, in a city called Pereira in the coffee growing area, where, where basically they told us about the past, the present, and the future of the coffee growing landscape. And um, that was quite interesting. And the last day we had like um, um, R&R kind of day. We went to a nice location, very touristy. Um, uh, and, they, and then we flew back to Bogota. And, and, and the uh, cherry on the cake was basically a, a very nice a final dinner uh, in a uh, restaurant overlooking Bogota. That was very nice before taking all, all the group to the airport. And I think that was it. So did I uh, forget something, Peter, Dan? No, no. I mean, as you say, a mix of uh, museums, uh, hiking in new environments, uh, meeting specialty coffee roasters in Bogota, um, visiting the farmers themselves, research centers. It really was a multifaceted trip uh, designed to meet the people uh, of, uh, of the country and certainly the coffee growers. Uh, but also really to engage with uh, environment and and with the society more generally. So yes, no good summary on today's. So I'm curious about the plantations themselves, the coffee plantations. 
do they vary wildly between the, like the small growers and the large growers? And what is the process of this coffee going from bean to my cup? Um, you know, Andres, I think you should answer this, but before you do, I just want to um, say that from the perspective of someone who had not seen coffee plantations before, I think my perspective would be very different from Andreas, who's seen them, who's lived in this environment. Um, for me, it, it, if you are familiar with the region we are in right now, Hamilton, the countryside around us is a lot of fields that are dotted with cows mm -hmm. or a lot of fields that have corn or hay. And then at the backs of those fields, you see the, the, the trees. So basically, these fields are carved out. Imagine if you would... Every single one of these fields packed with coffee trees, with coffee bushes or coffee plants. Um, it's just uh, uh, monumental. It's just it's it's um, there really are no words to describe how rich in coffee this this environment is. And um, it's something that as I drive by fields of cows that I now take for granted, I cannot drive by them without thinking about this experience of seeing coffee in absolutely every single pocket that could be, have coffee. Even along the highways, um, as we're driving down the mountainside, and there are mountain slopes that are as steep as can be, there are coffee plants. And I, I remember saying to Andreas, well, is that just growing wild? No, that's someone's cultivated area that's however many feet by however many feet, but it's, and it's on a steep slope. Someone's there picking the coffee. And, and um, that was my perspective of what it's like there. But I think, Andres, you probably would be better to speak of the, the, the next part of it. Okay. So, well, basically coffee is grown in Colombia um, on the temperate, temperate um, mountain ranges, basically from maybe 6,000 to um no, it's like a, from a thousand meters to two thousand meters, so that would be from two uh, three thousand feet to six thousand feet, more or less. Um, and it's a it's a it's it's a crop that is important because it brought value to sloping terrain. So you couldn't plant anything else on a sloping uh, terrain. So basically, coffee became very important. It's characterized by small holders. Uh, we are talking about um, uh, uh, farms that are rather small. Um, about five acres of, or six acres, something like that. And then um, the, the landscape itself, it's very patchy. Patchy in the sense that, although Dan uh, mentioned the dominance of coffee all over the place, you also have other crops. You also have forest interspersed with the coffee plots. And um, it's, it's, um, it's a very nice patchy kind of landscape. Uh, and it has been like that uh, since the mid-1800s, more or less. So coffee was used to recolonize areas that were abandoned um, prior to the to, to European contest. So areas uh, where pop indigenous population was wiped out by um, disease or whatnot. So basically, these were um, old forests that were um, that were reclaimed by, by these colonists. So uh, it's not like you would find in Brazil or uh, other places where you have huge coffee plantations. And the sloping terrain also, also makes um, a very important uh, contribution to how coffee is produced in Colombia. And it's the fact that 
most most of the most of the labor is hand labor because you cannot have a tractor on a very steep slope, on a very steep slope. So basically, um, it requires a lot of effort, a lot of, of time, um, and and um, the farmers themselves, as as we were able to to experience firsthand when we visited a couple of coffee farms, they are so proud of their coffee farms, of their fields. Um, they take care of them very lovingly, and um, and uh, coffee is not only an important product uh, for Colombia; it's an important. Um, an important asset for our cultural identity, let's say. So, so people, people, coffee is part of our identity as, as Colombians. Um, so once the, 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 the coffee cherries are ripe, basically they are taken uh, to, to um, they are picked by hand and they are basically uh, pulped. That means that they take uh, the, uh, the, the fleshy part of, of the coffee bean and then they ferment it for some time. Because the, 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 there is like a film, a very sticky film on the on the mucilage. It's called, technically speaking, a mucilage that is that is uh, stuck to to the coffee beans, and, and and a way to remove that is by fermentation. That's how it's done in Colombia, in other places. Uh, and we had long this, uh, conversations with Dan about this. They do it in other ways. They let the the, the coffee cherries dry. So after after the, the mucilage is removed, is removed, they dry the coffee, usually on the roofs of their houses. Um, and um, after that, they can store it and 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 take it to uh, cooperatives where they market the coffee. Um, there are variations on that process, but in, in a general sense, that's how it works. Um, and I don't know if Peter or Dan want to add something else. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I do also want to note, like, what is the um, how long does it take for coffee to grow uh, till it's uh, able to be harvested? Um, from the time you plant the seed to, to, to the first cherries that you can collect, it takes about two years, more or less. Um, and then the plant, the plant is, um, it's, it's, a, it's a perennial crop, a permanent crop. But after some years, the, the productivity uh, goes a little bit down. So in order to maintain the productivity, they, they keep either pruning or replacing their coffee bushes. So they replace the coffee bush or prune it every five years, more or less. And they can do it, um, the pruning, they can do it like three or four times. So the, the coffee tree uh, can take or can live um, uh, productively about 15 to 20 years, more or less. Hmm? But the younger, the more productivity is. Is there anything about the production, I'm looking at Dan here, that impacts the the coffee's overall characteristics characteristics flavor uh curious if there are certain types of cultivation that you know makes it better the, the well different i think better is subjective um uh but i would say different certainly the type the varietal of coffee that has been planted um and how it interacts with the environment uh will produce different flavor notes in the coffee uh, coffee, everything we eat is a, is a flavor acid, and the prevalence of a particular flavor acid will lead us to say, oh, this is, this is the taste of coconut, or this is the taste of chocolate, and coffee has thousands upon thousands of flavor acids, so there are so many variables that come into how that coffee will taste, and they all start with the varietal um, and how it's planted, where it's planted, and then, as Andres pointed out, how it's processed. There's so many variations on all that. Then 
in the roasting, how it's roasted will accentuate different attributes that are already in that seed, um, and then how it's extracted, how the barista pulls those flavors out. Um, so it, it's 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 just so complex, and it's fascinating that um, coffee can taste so very different. There's there's a story that I can tell later that doesn't really fit here about one of my customers just last week who um, came in and and saw which which coffee we were brewing on drip, um, and she decided not to get a drip coffee, but she went for an espresso instead because that particular blend she didn't like. And we're talking about a generic drip presentation, and she didn't want that blend, which she thought was an insult that she didn't like one of my blends, but I took it as a huge compliment because to me that means my blends, which is my goal, are distinct enough, discreet enough in their taste sensations that she could actually say she has a preference, Mm. which complimented me immensely. But that's, in a drip presentation, that was a huge compliment. And so there's just so many permutations out there. And in fact, the the students, when they visited uh, uh, Bojo Beans this past fall, before the trip to Columbia, Dan had them taste three different types of coffee and explain where they're from and what he was trying to, uh, I guess, tease out in terms of the roasting process and the different flavor notes and how his brand, I guess, as a, as a, a coffee seller, coffee roaster, requires a certain type of bean and so how he needs to find uh, producers and in even the same farm from year to year there may be changes in uh, the flavor notes so that was we we're starting to get into sophistication about this before we went to Colombia and then in Colombia in addition to visiting the farms and tasting coffee there we also you were mentioning the the, the varieties and Andres um, one of his favorite, specialty coffee roasters and cafes is called Varietale, which is variety. And that was one of my favorite parts of the trip because we went to this cafe and the owner gave us a wonderful presentation about his philosophy as someone who only, he's Colombian, he's in, he has, I think, is it five or or seven cafes in Bogota? Um, He focuses on uh, I think it's something like 80 or 90 different farms where he gets his, his coffee beans. But he, is, he sees as his mission not only to make a profit because he's trying to make a living off of this, but also to help his customers understand the kind of thing that Dan just described. So our students are were engaging with that in the city, then going to the farms, understanding the, the, the process at the farm level. Um, so they're really, again, starting to understand the goal of the course, which was to appreciate um, how coffee is grown, how people live on the coffee farms, the labor challenges, right? Can they make a living? Can they earn a living wage? Production processes, transportation, the importing process, how customers in the United States perceive all of this. Um, so this is the goal of the class, right? To get people to really uh, grapple with that. So uh, as, as you were talking, Dan, I was just reminded of that so what I consider to be a very special moment in the Varietale uh, uh, coffee shop where people were, were making that connection. I had a coffee that made me cry. <laughs> <laughs> I had in two, co- I had two coffees. That, I had one coffee that made me cry in Bogota in a good way, and then I had a coffee in Onda that made me cry in a bad way. <laughs> <clears throat> I think that's a good segue, too. I was curious – were any of these farms that you visited certified fair trade? Is this a fair trade thing? Is it not at the farm level? I'm not exactly sure how fair trade works. I know that that word or that phrase gets thrown around a lot. I don't know exactly what it means. I 
take it as someone being paid fairly for their work. But how does that all work? How does that um, – with the purchase of beans and the farmers selling their beans, well, um, are the places you visited fair trade and what is that? Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll discuss a little bit about – labeling, and then I'll turn it over to, to Andres and, and Dan for their perspective. Certainly, when we think about uh, challenges in anything we consume, right? Are people earning a living wage? Are there environmental challenges, water pollution, deforestation, what have you? Uh, one way to maybe, uh, as a consumer, get a sense of, uh, of what your options are, um, is the product you're buying um, in line with your values, right? We don't want child labor, in my view. We don't want um, you know, deforestation, biodiversity loss, and so forth. So sometimes you can get a sense of what uh, product you might like to buy if it is fair trade labeled or organic. Now, these labels are fraught with all kinds of problems. Um, the certification process, as Andres and Dan will describe, is, is fraught with problems. Um, if they work well, then you could have greater confidence that the, the farmers are living a, a, you know, a, a getting a living wage and earning a, a good living and that uh, your other values are, are being, I guess, reflected in, in that. And, and maybe that means you, you're willing to pay more for, for whatever you're buying. But as uh, both Andres and Dan will say, um, the certification process is often difficult, and farmers often have very good reasons for not wanting to, uh, to go that route. So maybe I'll turn it over. Andres, would you like to talk a little bit about sure. uh, the Colombian context? or I, 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 I can talk about that. But, well, basically... More than uh, targeting the fair trade uh, um, labeling schemes or the fair trade, the fair trade uh, um, market, what the Colombian coffee growers have been doing is mostly um, going to the sustainable coffee uh, labels. So that means uh, uh, like Rainforest Alliance uh, or organic certified, things like that. Um, and, and the reason for that is that um, the quality of Colombian coffee has been always been recognized in the international market. So the, 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 the Colombian coffee uh, by its quality already has a, a higher price than other kinds of coffee. And, and um, they, they, the way in which coffee is produced in the country, um, uh, usually with some sort of shade, although not necessarily um, uh, in, 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 in all, all coffee farms, you find like a shade coffee coffee production, you have like sun grown production or shade grown production, but basically um, it was relatively easy to jump from producing coffee under shade trees, under a forest, to um, getting like these more environmentally friendly certifications that the than the labor certification. But the, 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 this, this, some, some of these labels like Rainforest Alliance are not only um, uh, environmentally friendly, they, they want to be sustainable sustainability involves at least three pillars that, that means economic social and environment so so that's what they have they, they, they have done and the national coffee growers federation has um, supported many farmers to become like uh, small associations that they can um, i mean they, they they have to to create enough um, a, a group of farmers that can produce enough so they can market it because uh, the, the the coffee marketed from one farm is not enough uh, for for the for the consumer or for the for the roaster for a small roaster like Dan or for a big or a big roaster they won't have the the quantities to warrant to guarantee the, the constant uh, flow of coffee to to these to these roasters um, so basically about 
I think right now it's about 60% of the coffee produced in Colombia uh, is produced under um, the sustainable, on some sort of sustainable coffee production system. Um, and, but sometimes they have problems. They cannot sell it as such. So they, 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 although they are certified, they cannot get the premium price because it's, it's a different kind of market uh, uh, rather than uh, uh, marketing huge quantities of coffee to one big roaster. What you are doing is basically um, selling a, a small batches of coffee to 50 or 60 roaster. And that makes it more difficult. You don't know to whom you are buying, who is you're going to be your client. So it's not necessarily easy. And Dan mentioned that several times that for him, it was very nice to get to know local farmers because he could eventually be, become um, engaged with them in some way. To piggyback on what you're saying, Andres, on my end of the business, um, I have to pay attention to my my customers uh, in addition to paying attention to what my values are. So I deal exclusively with specialty-grade coffees, which is the top tier in coffee. I do not um, purchase the, the commercial coffee, commercially graded. I don't pur purchase the um, uh, premium coffees. It's just the top tier, the specialty grade. But even within that... I have to pay attention to organic practices, fair trade practices, rainforest-friendly practices, and bird migration-friendly practices. Mm -hmm. So uh, I have customers who want labels, but I do not market any of my coffees as certified anything. I spend my focus and time on um, doing what Andres spoke about, focusing on where the transparency is to demonstrate these practices. So it takes me a year or so to vet the people I'm getting coffee from to learn if their practices have these pillars of organic fair trade, uh, rainforest friendly and bird migration friendly so that I can bring these coffees in without a label. When I do not have that transparency, I rely on some of my importers who do have the transparency and or I will rely on the labels, the certification labels that are coming in. I'm grateful that they're there. They are fraught with problems. I think it's really important to make sure that there's some level of oversight, even if it's flawed. So, for example, some of the problems include uh, inspections being intermittent, so child labor may be being used even when you think it's not. Um, you also have problems in terms of the sort of the bureaucracy, um, the fees associated with getting certification at the farm level that may be prohibitive in some way. So there are good reasons for farmers who may be doing their best to, to grow something in a sustainable way to not get the label. Um, there may be reasons why coffee roasters and, and specialty coffee um, um, sellers like Dan might not want the label because it, it, it is some way uh, preventing uh, him from doing his business. Or indeed, uh, often, if I'm not mistaken, Dan, you are looking for beans from many different places to sort of combine for the flavor notes you want. And it may be really difficult to have all of that fall under a particular label. Right. I, if I'm looking for, in my blends, if I have one that is labeled organic, one that's labeled rainforest friendly, one that's labeled uh, fair trade, they may be all of the above, but their, their certification is in one category. If I have a customer who says, what do you have that's rainforest friendly? Well... All of them, but if you're looking for certified, I have that as a single origin, but it's in this blend, but you know, it's just, it just gets really complicated and muddy. I've um, heard about a lot of those things before, but I have not heard about migration friendly. What is that? 
uh, as Andres said before, um, coffee grows under a shade canopy naturally, but that's not always the case when you're working with, let's, I'll, I'll just use Brazil for an example. Um, you can set up an organic farm in Brazil. You can tear down a portion of the rainforest and you can plant coffee trees that are organic, certified organic. You can ruin the local economy. You can cover these trees, these coffee plants with an artificial shade canopy to protect them from the sun. And you can have a certified organic coffee that may not even be specialty grade. And it's just ruined the environment in many ways. Um, but yet you've got that organic certified label on there that can exist. And, I'm not saying I, it does. But Andreas, go jump in. Uh, I was just going to say that um, labels do not necessarily, or, or they are not correlated with quality. That's something very important. And so you can have a very, uh, I mean, a coffee with all the labels that you want that taste horribly. And um, <laughs> we've had that. We've had that. <laughs> So, so basically, it's important for people to to remember that they are they are they can they, they are things that happen at the, at the same level that at, I mean at the farm level, but they are not necessarily related to quality. So, so, so you can have a a, a coffee that is bird friendly, um, fair trade, but that is not good to drink. It's it's it's, it's like battery acid or something. <laughs> Andres, what makes it bird friendly? What what are the bird practices? I'm I'm just very curious about okay. this. What, what happens is that in uh, the, the bird-friendly coffees, what, what they are looking for is that uh, the, 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 the forests the, or the shade forests that are associated with the coffee plantations, with the coffee plots, um, they are the shelter for lots of migratory species. When, when they migrate, that's where they, 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 they nest, they stay, they spend their time. So in the 19... Starting in the 1970s, there was a push in all, all, all over uh, South America and Latin America in general to get rid of the shade and, um, and get what is called sun-grown coffee. So basically, that would be a coffee plot with no shade. Uh, and and, and, and uh, that threatened quite heavily uh, the migrant bird populations. Uh, so I think it was the... the First uh, label that emerged was a, uh, sponsored by the Smithsonian, I believe, and it's called Bird Friendly. And they wanted to preserve this this coffee, this coffee um, shade plantations, um, shaded plantations, so they could basically have shelter for for, for migratory species. And and uh, uh, and there there is when we're talking about the the, the, the areas where coffee is produced throughout Latin America, there is no not too much. Uh, like primary forest left in the same areas as coffee is produced. So, so these these uh, shade uh, forests or shade uh, coffee plantations are extremely important uh, in providing some of the of the ecosystem services that the, the the primary forests would offer. So, basically, that's 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 the idea. Hmm? Can you talk a little bit about how climate change is impacting coffee production? I presume since uh, a lot of these beans are grown in very high altitudes, that temperature has a major role in the coffee's growth and flavor and everything else. Tell me a little bit more about how coffee production is being impacted and did the students get to witness any of that, um, uh, that change? Uh, I'll let you answer uh, as I, I make one initial comment, uh, Andres, but uh, certainly you're absolutely right. Uh, we have 
uh, evidence of climate change, most dramatic at the high latitudes. Uh, but in the case of, of Colombia, we do have glaciers melting, uh, microclimates shifting. Uh, and so there's certainly a lot of scholarship that points to concerns about the biophysical conditions that are so important. And Andres mentioned this um, this range in elevation yeah. and other conditions that are so important in, in whether coffee is viable or not. Those are changing, and you see lots of scholarship uh, around the world that coffee-growing regions might be might be in trouble. Uh, problems problems with uh, sort of coffee rust or other diseases also connected to climate change. What was interesting, and, and maybe Andres can pick up on this, is when we went to the the coffee research center, um, and students asked about climate change. The director of the the center um, said that it wasn't a big problem right now, and that um, indeed some of their modeling suggested that it may not affect them dramatically in in the short term. So we thought that was surprising. I don't know if Andres, were you surprised by that? Oh yes, absolutely. I was absolutely surprised to hear that. Uh, even even uh, given the fact that uh, in uh, in their own uh, journal there is there there are a few articles that are, were published showing that the suitability for coffee is going to change. So maybe those articles are old or maybe they have encountered that, that the problem is not as big, but uh, perhaps more than temperature, what is, what is impacting coffee more is what is called climate variability. So uh, basically in the coffee growing areas of Colombia, you are getting more extreme events. And by extreme events, I mean very strong or very long um, uh, Rainy, rain, rain events or rainy seasons that are very long, or on the other side, you have very long droughts and that affects coffee. So for a long time, um, the idea was to, uh, to try to remove um, the shade trees uh, to prevent um, coffee leaf rust. But now that they have developed some coffee leaf rust uh, resistant varieties for coffee, for coffee, basically they are putting back some of the shade because that helps farmers um, to, let's say, buffer the climate variability. They may, may produce less coffee, but um, the, 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 the varieties of climate, uh, the climatic variability doesn't impact them as much. So and anecdotally speaking, I have, I have talked to many farmers that have said, oh yes, we used to plant coffee here. We cannot do that anymore. It's too hot. And, and some of the research I have seen, although it has maybe five, 10 years, um, since it was published, it says that the, the suitability for coffee in Colombia and in many other areas is going to be impacted, heavily impacted, up to 70% or 80% of the land that has coffee now will not be as suitable as it is today. An important thing to think about is not only the viability of coffee, it's also uh, affecting farmers who may have small farms and if sort of the range of, of viability for good coffee production changes, they may not have land in that area, right? So um, their livelihoods could be affected negatively as well. So there's social and environmental implications. Certainly if the quality of the coffee cannot be maintained, then they cannot command a competitive price. Hmm. Did you visit any of the places where you buy coffee from? No, I did not. No, um, I, I purchased my coffee differently from many other roasters because I am what's known as a post blender. I'll roast for key attributes and then blend afterward. I am always seeking out coffee that is skewed in a particular tasting note direction, which means I cannot necessarily be loyal to a single farm. 
I'm seeking the tasting note. I see. And um, that that means that my hunting is a little different, but I'm then I, I'm also not wedded to a particular farm, and if their quality goes up or down, it does not affect me. If they if their that particular farm has leaf rust and they don't produce that year, it doesn't affect me because my my hunt will continue um, for a particular taste note. Dan was trying to convince us to go to all kinds of interesting places in Colombia, including the the, the coffee farms where you sometimes I will tried. import things. But uh, we didn't. We, we were um, <laughs> scheduling this trip uh, earlier than than um, than the time that we planned to have Dan come along. So unfortunately, we couldn't visit all the places. But we'll have to go back. I cried, <laughs> but I still saw some more. I cried when I saw the coffee trees too. I did a lot of crying on this trip. Oh yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of tears. I was. I was. I think the the mo- well. You talked about your. Peter, you talked about one of the things that was um, an impactful moment for you and mine was something that Andres mentioned, um, which was the trip up and down the mountains to follow the trail that the coffee uh, the coffee went. And as we were sitting on an air-conditioned bus for a five-hour drive, and I am watching all the students complain about how long and uncomfortable this air-conditioned five-hour bus ride is, all I could think of was looking out the window, seeing these unair conditioned trucks doing on the same route and thinking this coffee going from the River Magdalena up the mountain and down the mountain into the coffee region is done by these unair conditioned trucks. It's been done by mules, it's been done by horses. I'm sure people have walked it with coffee and it was I was thrilled to be feeling uncomfortable and itchy in my in you know in my air conditioned bus that didn't have a bathroom oh my goodness how horrible was that that i you know that i was a little inconvenienced he, he tended to tease the students if you didn't uh, i did i will tease them i'll still <laughs> tease them but um yeah that 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 was the most incredible moment for me experiencing the coffee journey and having my little bit of discomfort knowing that <laughs> All I have to do now is make a phone call, and my coffee arrives a couple of days later. It is incredible the steep topography and be coming down from uh, Bogota. Uh, we dropped what eight thousand feet or something to Onda. Very windy roads, seeing all kinds of, uh, of, of you know, niches in terms of the environment and different kinds of land use. Um, so I agree, uh, Dan. It's it's impressive to think back uh, at how. Not, not just today, but in the past, how coffee uh, came from Colombia to all kinds of markets and other places. Uh, the museum uh, along the, uh, the Magdalena River in Ondo, Ondo, excuse me, um, was one of the highlights as well because you really got to understand the history, the role of that river. It, uh, it flows north um, into the Caribbean, but uh, it is, is very much a, uh, a, a thoroughfare for um, all kinds of things, in, the, in particular in the distant past. Um, and students got a chance to really understand that. Um, so you're absolutely right, Dan. Um, an important element to the trip was understanding the difficulty of transportation. Mm-hmm. I also want to point out your your emotional side. Dan was uh, the the most enthusiastic, uh, I think, person in terms of uh, questions, and students, I think, really got a chance to... Um, well, it was kind of infectious, right? And I always noticed that Dan would go off with different students and have long, interesting conversations, and, and he switched to another student. So he 
very much was, uh, I think, a, a, an energy uh, uh, energy source for a lot of us, as well as a source of information. And having that um, technical knowledge as someone who imports coffee and roast coffee, he asks questions that students uh, or on the and I might not have asked. So it's, it was a way of uh, really enriching how we engaged with the uh, with with people and the subject matter. So thank you for that, Dan. Yeah, I Mm. <laughs> Any surprises along the way? Was there anything that kind of uh, caught you off guard as you were traveling? I mean, I know this was peak COVID time, or, or, or was it a valley? I, I can't keep track at this oh, point. Oh, it was a peak. <laughs> <laughs> we were very scared of that. Uh, we carried, like, um, lots of um, home um, test kits uh, just in case, and fortunately nothing happened. But, uh, yeah, we got our our our... Surprises, for example, we were uh, coming out of a market in Bogota, a very traditional market in Bogota. And then this old gentleman, nicely dressed, uh, he was an indigenous man and he was wearing his, his attire. And uh, he approached me and he said, would you like me to um, bless you? Uh, and I said, no. And, uh, and apparently he, un uh, he didn't understand or anything. So he, he blessed us. He went around with his staff and, and he went around us. And at, uh, at the end of that, uh, he told me, nothing wrong is going to happen with your group. And I, I think I gave him, I know, the equivalent of $3 or something like that. That was the best investment of the day. <laughs> 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 nothing, nothing bad happened. Nothing went wrong. The only, the only like adventure we had uh, is that uh, our boss got stuck at some point and we had to push and uh, we had the students trying to, to, to push the, the, I mean, there was like a muddy part of, 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 of a road and um, then we, we got help to get out of, of, of that mud hole, but, um, but that was kind of fun. I thought. Well, hope Martin Wong is not listening as we're describing students pushing this big bus. <laughs> You know, I said nothing. The uh, we were <laughs> we were cranking along. We got up early. Um, we're, we're up late. I mean, it was an intense ten days. Um, my surprise, as someone who's led a lot of off-campus study uh, programs for students uh, in places like Uganda and South Africa and Australia um, and Manchester, is just how incredibly well things went. And and kudos to you, Andres. I mean, I, you know, mm -hmm. the expert in terms of uh, coffee. Um, uh, Colombian society, but also the person who uh, would help solve the problem if the bus got stuck and made sure we were on time. So I was, uh, I, I shouldn't say surprised, but grateful uh, that we didn't have any problems with COVID. We almost canceled the trip. Um, Andres, Dan and I, um, Martin, many people were in a part of conversations about whether it was a good idea as Omicron was, was spiking. Turns out that in Colombia, people wear their masks. We were outside most of the time, eating in open air um, venues most of the time. So I was really grateful for that. One thing that surprised me is how difficult it is to hike at 12,000 feet. We, um, we went on a day-long hike uh, in the Chingasa National Park in the Paramo that, that Andres described. And I was doing very well until the very end when we were getting at that very high elevation. And I would be walking along and immediately start panting and getting out of breath. And if you stop, your breath comes back to you rather quickly. But I realized I am not in that kind of hiking shape at that kind of elevation. Uh, so that, that was, I guess, uh, surprising. Uh, maybe I should have expected it, but it's surprising to me. And do you have any surprises, Dan? No. Other than that hike, and I was surprised that at the end of the hike, I made it to the top 
halfway in the group, and I was at the back the whole time. But I was the tortoise. Just kept going. You, um, you were worried about it, but you, you made it. Um, I, I made impressed. it. No, there, there were truly no surprises, and I think that was probably the biggest surprise. Everything was planned out. The adult enthusiasm was infectious, and the students were were caught up in it, and we all did what we were supposed to do. Um, no one was allowed to... I don't. I shouldn't say allowed. That wasn't the right word. But just no one strayed. No one straggled. We all were shepherds and sheepdogs, and just kept everyone as a as a group. And the enthusiasm was high, and everyone was swept up in it. We did what we thought we were going to do, and it just it went beautifully. And also, just to to add to that, um, one of the goals of the SRS program is not just the content of the course or the, what your pedagogical goals are for the trip. It's community building. Um, so the fact that I'm coming away uh, with two, I would hope, lifelong friends now and Andres and Dan, uh, I got to know, and I think we all did, students very well. There's nothing like traveling together in, a, in an intense context mm-hmm. to really get to know people. And the students have told me that they have become really close. Um, so the SRS program, they're living together all year long, um, even though they were we were doing programming and visiting, you know, uh, Beacon Skiff and, and Fojo Beans and all these field trips in central New York last fall, still they didn't make necessarily the kind of connections that, that maybe they, I was hoping they would. But the January trip did that. And now I see them having made, I hope, lifelong friendships. So I really do uh, value that. And, and I guess it, it's not surprising, but it's really, again, gratifying. Peter, you don't know this, but I have students bringing in their parents to come meet me at Fojo Beans today. <laughs> You know, you, so you were on this Columbia trip with my child. And so that's it's kind of a neat thing when they think enough to bring in their parents to share that experience. Yeah, absolutely. And Andres, uh, there's a, a WhatsApp, a group WhatsApp, and Andres is always providing some commentary, right, Andres? <laughs> yes, every time I can, yeah. Always educational. <laughs> All right. Well, we typically do 13 questions here, and this was obviously a little bit more freeform than normal, but I always like to end with something fun at the end uh, for a 13th question. So we'll call this the 13th question. What is your favorite way to enjoy coffee? Mm. I enjoy – I have a high-end uh, grinder. So I'm going to tell you what I do in my office. I have an electric kettle. I have a little ceramic uh, filter. Then you put the paper filter in. I should bring my grinder into the office. Dan tells me I have to uh, – uh, fifteen within 15 minutes of grinding it, you're supposed to brew it. But what I do is I, I grind it at home and then I do a pour over. So I have my, my perfect little mug of coffee um, ideally, I'm outside and it's sunny out and I can really sip and enjoy it. But that's that's one way I really enjoy drinking coffee. Um, how about you, Dan? Do you have a favorite? My favorite way to have coffee is having someone hand it to me. <laughs> <laughs> any and all? <laughs> any and all in any way. Andres, how about you? Oh, I think um, uh, coffee, I would say for me, it's, it's, it's more like a social kind of uh, activity. So for me, having coffee with with friends or with with with, uh, uh, with people, it's it's the nicest way to, to have it. I I, I uh, in terms of how to brew it, I prefer the French press. And now I prefer coffees that are not not, not that are like medium roast. I um, have moved away from very dark roast that I really. Uh, don't like they 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 all taste the same basically they kill the coffee flavor so I don't like them anymore that that's thanks in part to to Dan and um, um, and 
No, I enjoy coffee. I en enjoy my, my Sunday cappuccino at home. That's nice, <laughs> having my breakfast, my Sunday cappuccino, homemade cappuccino. And I think if the students were here, they would say their favorite coffee was the one that was served to us at the coffee farm by a um, an older gentleman and his wife, and, um, and and it was very good. And as as Andres noted, the the people around, we were on the farm. It was it was really special. Yeah, there's nothing like having coffee at the source with the people who picked the beans or well grew the beans. And um, and, and Dan was mentioning all the time, oh, this is so fresh. <laughs> yes, yes. It it um you can taste the freshness of that coffee when you're there. Uh, so many customers come to me and they say, "I visited a coffee farm in this place. Do you have coffee from that region?" And really what they're seeking is the the taste of freshness. Um any of those coffees at any quality that we tasted, you can truly taste from my perspective, you can truly taste that it has been so recently picked. It's incredible. That was 13. Thank you all for joining the program. Uh, Peter, Andres, Dan, this was really great. I really appreciate having you here. Thank you, Dan. Thank you very much. Uh, tell, your, tell your friends and family about the podcast. Uh, <laughs> if uh, folks have any questions, uh, feel free to email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number. And until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of University Communications. Executive Producer, Vice President for Communications, Laura Jack. Audio Engineering by Brian Ness. Logo Art by Catrail Pritz. Research Assistance provided by Colgate sophomore and media relations intern, Marianne Lemon. And I am your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth university news and research stories.